Hello everyone, and thank you once again for listening to the saga of World War II, a Cassus Belly Project. First, I'd like to thank all of my patrons on Patreon. If you would like to contribute, you can go to patreon.com slash Podcasts. Any contribution is appreciated. In today's episode, we focus on Operation Torch, the Allied effort to take North Africa. This is the rare, tightly focused episode where I just talk about one thing. No biography, no digression into doctrine, just what happened in order. Well, there's a small digression about some geopolitical effects of a decision made on campaign, but I think that ultimately is the point of all this. What the causes and effects were of events in the past, and how they shaped the world today, and what lessons we can draw from them. Regardless, let's begin episode 31, Torchlight. Ah have been astonished that Japan should in a single day have plunged into war against the United States and the British Empire. What kind of a people do they think we are? Is it possible they do not realize that we shall never cease to persevere against them until they have been taught a lesson which they and the world will never forget? episode 22, we discussed the Eastern Front in the summer of 1942 and the abject failure of the raid at Dieppe. The Wehrmacht had battled its way deep into southern Russia and Ukraine, reaching the Caucasus Mountains in the south and the Volga River in the east. They aimed for the city of Stalingrad, which lay at the Volga River and intended for it to serve as the crossing point. As the Battle of Guadalcanal began in August, it would also mark the beginning of the Siege of Stalingrad. By mid-September, the Battle for Stalingrad proper would be raging in earnest. The summer of 1942 would also see the entrance of Dwight Eisenhower onto the stage. Until this point, he had been working as General Marshall's aide in Washington, ever at his side diligently chasing down anything and everything the chief of staff needed. For his work ethic and his diplomatic sensibility, Marshall nominated Eisenhower to be the commander of the European Theater of Operations. This would place Eisenhower on equal footing with Admiral Nimitz and General MacArthur, something that would irk MacArthur devilishly, and that he would never really accept. Eisenhower was probably the complete opposite of MacArthur. Where MacArthur was a prima donna who always had to get his way, imposed his will on everyone, and was prone to rivalry, Eisenhower was humble, amiable, and made a point of squashing beef. When he arrived in his command on June 24, 1942, he immediately began to melt his staff together and nurture his image in the public eye of the British. He could not have rivalries between services and nations spoiling his own efforts from within, and he needed the British public to be on his side, and on the side of the American serviceman. The experience of the First World War left a sour taste in everyone's mouth for coalition warfare, and Eisenhower's first goal was to undo that. He would allow no American to disparage his British allies, and would even demote and exile men back to America for any ill words towards their allies. Within his staff, his efforts certainly paid off. His officers, from all nations, strove to achieve the ideal which he espoused. Somewhat of an ulterior motive to getting Eisenhower into the European theater, an allied headquarters in London, however, 
was to get him to advocate for the inevitable invasion of Europe. The British were loath to conduct a cross-channel invasion too soon, and were always dreaming up secondary and diversionary fronts. But the Americans had a broader view, and needed to keep the Soviets in the war. Hitler had plunged thousands of miles into the Soviet Union, and it looked on the brink of collapse. Something had to be done to take the pressure off. Part of this effort was the raid on Dieppe, but a much larger operation was in the making, one that would eventually become Overlord. For now, however, there was the humble Operation Sledgehammer. Sledgehammer was the initial plan to invade France in 1942, but the British fought it so hard that it was abandoned and succeeded by Operation Roundup. This invasion plan, aimed at Le Havre, would be a joint Anglo-American venture, but it never really got off the ground either. Field Marshal Sir Alan Brooke attacked it from inception, saying that if it failed, it would not help the Soviets at all, and even if it did, a few divisions in France would not draw any men from the east, only garrison forces from France and the Low Countries. Field Marshal Brooke did broach a similar invasion, but in North Africa rather than Europe, which Marshall reported to Washington. With the alliance at a stalemate, Marshall informed Roosevelt, who accepted this fact and acquiesced to the British desire for an American invasion in Africa. Churchill was ecstatic when he learned that Roosevelt was on board with the North African landing. He immediately thought up a codename for it, Operation Torch. With the Americans begrudgingly on board, Churchill now had to bring Stalin round. So he traveled to Moscow in late July. At first, Stalin was critical. Churchill told him an invasion of continental Europe was too big of a risk. It would not actually take any strain off of the Red Army. Stalin retorted that men who do not take risks do not win wars. Seeing that he wasn't getting very far with that line of reasoning, Churchill shifted and told him about Operation Torch. The Americans would land in North Africa. He explained that this would force Rommel to withdraw. It would shorten British supply lines. It would expose the Italians to direct attack and, most importantly, expose the soft underbelly of Europe. Despite the fact that the idea of a soft underbelly was kind of nonsense, Stalin bought into the idea. It wasn't as good as an invasion of Europe proper, but it was certainly better than nothing. Churchill departed victorious. Stalin was on board. With Torch now in the making, it needed a commander. There seemed only one real choice for the job, Eisenhower. Though only hours before he had been fiercely committed to defeating the idea, once he was placed in command of it, he put his whole being into ensuring its success. Everyone agreed the ultimate objective of Torch was the city of Tunis, at the fulcrum of the Tunisian coast. But how to begin the operation was another debate. Eisenhower, always to the point, wanted to strike as close as feasible to the objective. This would prevent Hitler from being able to rush troops south in time to save Rommel. Marshall, on the other hand, was more cautious and skeptical. From the start, he believed a North African operation to be nothing more than a distraction. The war could only be won by a direct invasion of Northwest Europe. He also did not believe the French would suddenly turn on the Germans as soon as some Americans showed up. He believed that if they landed inside the Mediterranean, therefore crossing the Strait of Gibraltar, they would expose their rear to some mischief from Franco, the Spanish dictator. Though thus far he had not taken sides in the war, he was clearly sympathetic to his fellow fascists, especially Hitler, who had sent him troops to help him defeat the Republicans during the Spanish Civil War. If he should choose to seize the British-held Rock of Gibraltar, he could close off the Med and doom whatever Americans had already passed the strait. The initial landings must occur on the Atlantic side. Subsequent landings could take place beyond the rock. So the initial landing would take place at Casablanca, followed by two more landings at Algiers and Oran. 
This plan required moving troops vast distances by sea. It is a thousand miles from Britain to Morocco as the crow flies, meaning the convoys would have to travel even farther than that. Then, it is 800 miles from Casablanca to Algiers, and another 400 miles to Tunis. It would take careful planning to overcome this obstacle, but it could be done. It had already been done in the Pacific. What was more problematic were the French colonial garrisons. They were a motley of varying loyalties. Some had pledged themselves to Patan's Vichy government, others were loyal to de Gaulle's free French government in exile, and their motivation to stay true to their causes was unknown. To make matters more complicated, the Free French and Vichy French were openly hostile to one another. Most importantly, though, the French in Algeria had sworn themselves to Patan in Vichy, and thus were nominally a part of the Axis. How committed they were to their conquerors was yet to be seen. To help untie this knot, Eisenhower met with Robert Murphy, the United States envoy to French Algeria, on September 16th in London. Murphy was confident in his knowledge of French sympathies, and his ability to coerce them to the Allied cause. De Gaulle was skeptical of Murphy's ability, but Murphy persisted. He argued that he could win over the French army if he could bring in retired French officer and hero of the First World War, Henri Girard, who had escaped from a POW camp in 1940. He told Eisenhower that if Girard were to land in North Africa, the French troops there would rally to him, clearing the way for the Americans. He said he had the assurance of the French chief of staff in Algeria that it was so. Eisenhower took everything Murphy said with a grain of salt. The man seemed to have committed the all-too-common sin of going native on his diplomatic assignment. He also did not believe the Vichy French would fold so easily. He also declined Murphy's request to begin arming the small resistance network he said he was fostering. When Murphy asked when the invasion would occur, Eisenhower simply told him, sometime in February. Murphy did not leave the meeting with his tail tucked, however. In mid-October, he messaged Eisenhower with some intriguing news. General Most, the Algerian chief of staff, wanted Girard in charge of Torch, and that Admiral Darlan's son, Admiral Darlan being the chief of the Vichy French Armed Forces, had said that Darlan would cooperate with the Allies. There was a catch, however. No one else in the French forces, Free or Vichy, wanted anything to do with Darlan. Darlan was an unapologetic fascist and anti-Semite. When the Nazis took over, no one rushed to their aid faster. Darlan hated the British, he considered de Gaulle a traitor, and he was just all around a bad dude. Murphy wanted some guidance from Eisenhower on how to proceed, and he let him know that General Most sought a secret American delegation to Algiers. Eisenhower was not comfortable making this decision on his own, so he met with Churchill and the rest of the Allied brass in London. Despite Darlan's less-than-stellar reputation, he was a power broker, and Churchill wanted the French Navy. So they all agreed to conduct the secret rendezvous with the French in Algeria, and all agreed that General Mark Clark was the man for the job. Clark was almost immediately flown to Gibraltar, where a submarine was waiting to take him to Algiers. After arriving in Gibraltar, Clark boarded the HMS Seraph, where he met its skipper and the three British commandos who would take him ashore. On October 21st, they found the rendezvous beach, but had to wait until they saw the signal and for nightfall. That didn't occur until the night of October 22nd to 23rd. When they saw the signal, just before midnight, the commandos unfolded their little collapsible canoes and took the general to shore. They allowed the soft surf to carry them to land, and once there, folded up their boats and began to ascend the stony beach to the small French colonial villa that sat atop it. As they strode upward, they were greeted by Murphy and a collection of Frenchmen, among them M. Tessier, the owner of the villa. Tessier was fiercely patriotic and sent away his Arab servants in case any of them were informing on him. 
Just sending them away, however, was considered suspicious. So unknown to the delegation, the police had been informed. At 5 a.m. on October 23rd, General Mast and his co-conspirators arrived at the villa. They were in full uniform and brought with them reams of documents and maps. Clark was impressed by the volumes of information, but also by Mast's earnestness. They discussed the details of French positions for hours, but Clark was careful not to reveal any details about Operation Torch. He especially could not reveal that troops and ships were already underway from Norfolk, Virginia to North Africa. Their meeting continued until noon when the phone rang. The police were on the way. Mast and his men quickly changed in civilian clothes and made their exit, while Clark and the remaining men bundled up the documents to hide and flee. The commandos, hiding in the attic, fled without their boats, and Clark himself hid in the wine cellar beneath a trap door. He and his small staff huddled there, holding carbines and pistols, prepared to fight their way out if they had to. Fortunately, it didn't come to that, thanks to quick thinking by Tessier and Murphy. They put on a display of drinking and singing when the police arrived, and when asked why they had sent away their servants, they told the gendarmes that Murphy was the American consul in Algiers, and that they had some female companions upstairs, and they wished to avoid any embarrassment. This seemed to satisfy the police, who made a show of stomping around the house, but then departed. With the police gone, Clark collected his bags and information and left as fast as he could. He took bread and wine for his journey and made for the beach. The first time he tried to make for the submarine, he was turned back by the ocean. Wet and cold, he had to return to the villa. Tessier was terrified, but obliged, and gave him some dry clothes, but bid him to leave immediately. This time Clark made it through the surf into the Seraph. One of the bags of documents was lost in the surf, and Clark was terrified that if discovered, it would reveal the whole plot. Fortunately, it was never found, and probably sits on the bottom of the med to this day. After returning to England, Churchill was giddy with satisfaction at the success of the escapade. He loved a good adventure story, and invited Clark to dinner that night to recount his tale. Clark declined, however. He was far too tired. The date for Torch was set for November 8th, and all of the pieces were moving into place. Men and supplies were sailing across the Atlantic, and Eisenhower was flying to Gibraltar, his seat of command. Roosevelt, back in Washington, lamented the invasion wouldn't take place until after the midterm elections, scheduled for November 3rd, 1942. Unlike Churchill, he did not fiddle with military operations for political gain. He set the overarching strategy as the role for the American president, but tactical and operational matters he left entirely to the professionals. When Eisenhower arrived in Gibraltar, he found that there really wasn't much for him to do. All of the pieces were in motion already and in radio silence to mask their movements. The only thing he really had to do was deal with the stereotypically French general Giraud. The haughty, self-important man demanded to be placed in overall command of the operation. Surely he did not believe he would actually have operational control. He was more of a figurehead to give the Allies, and Americans in particular, since they were the ones that actually would be landing, legitimacy. But here he was, demanding the reins and suggesting the objective be changed to southern France here at the 11th hour. Eisenhower, ever the diplomat, told him he should make a radio broadcast to French forces in North Africa, bidding them cooperate with the Allies. Gerard still refused. Eisenhower told him he would be Governor General of Liberated North Africa and have total command there. Gerard still stubbornly refused and left their meeting saying he would merely be a spectator. Eisenhower then sent General Clark to treat with the Frenchman. He had more success. 
He told him that he either accepted Eisenhower's proposal or sit out the rest of the war. Finally, Giraud agreed and made a broadcast of Vichy French troops in North Africa. Giraud's announcement was promptly ignored by the French defending the beaches. By now, the invasion had begun in earnest, and American troops were landing. The French fought them in Casablanca and Oran. In Algiers, Murphy's small underground tried to arrest General Alphonse Jouin, the commander of Vichy French forces in Algeria, but failed. When he learned that the resistors had been captured and arrested, Murphy rushed to meet with Jouin himself and convinced him to end the fighting. Jouin told his men in Algiers to not resist the Americans, but then Admiral Darlan arrived. Murphy tried the same with him, to get him to order all French forces in North Africa to stand down, but he refused. Darlan demanded to meet with Eisenhower before making any such order, and he refused to work with Gerard. By now, Eisenhower had had enough of these pompous Frenchmen. Didn't they know they had lost the war? Who were they to make demands? The Americans had no interest in fighting the French, but they would destroy them if they had to. Eisenhower complained that he was sick of, quote, the petty intrigue and the necessity of dealing with little, selfish, conceited worms, end quote. Eisenhower did not meet with Darlan himself, but once again sent Clark to act as his envoy. At the same time, Pétain ordered all French forces in North Africa to hold out and keep fighting. Then Hitler ended the semi-autonomy of Vichy France and annexed the rest of the country. Case Anton was the codename for the occupation of Vichy France. When Hitler learned that Americans were landing in North Africa, he executed it, and within days, even the emasculated rump state in Vichy ceased to exist, and Hitler disbanded the French armed forces. He did not trust the French to hold out against the Americans, who they had no natural animus towards. The British they had a long-standing rivalry with, though it had turned to a love-hate relationship over the course of the first half of the 20th century. Now German troops would garrison the Mediterranean shores of France. Back in North Africa, Torch was proceeding apace. Major General George S. Patton was in command of the Western Task Force, landing at Casablanca, and at about 8 in the morning, he himself strode ashore through the surf. There had been no preliminary bombardment, and the French there had been mostly loyal to Patton's regime, and thus fought resolutely. The same had been true at all three Western landing sites, Safi, Fidala, and Medea. The landings were not the cakewalk that had been hoped for, but the American forces quickly established their beachheads and began moving inland. Out at sea, the rather odd naval battle of Casablanca was fought, in which German submarines and the French Navy attempted to repel the American fleet supporting the invasion forces. American naval aircraft rose from the USS Ranger to take on French fighters thrown against them, and the battleship USS Massachusetts fired on the immobile French battleship Jean Bart. After several days of sporadic fighting, one French cruiser, six French destroyers, and six French submarines were sunk. The U.S. Navy suffered two damaged destroyers. In Algiers, General Clark was working with Murphy to strike a deal with Darlan to end French resistance in North Africa. Darlan shifted and pleaded for lack of authority and that he would have to consult Patan. Clark was having none of it. Through Murphy, who interpreted for him, he began bullying Darlan, telling him that if he did not have the authority, he would find someone who did. Finally, Darlan agreed, at the persuasion of General Jouin. Darlan would be made High Commissioner of Liberated North Africa, and Gerard would be the Commander-in-Chief. Darlan also promised that the French fleet would not fall into German hands. On November 10th, after two days of fighting, Admiral Darlan gave the order for all French forces to stand down in North Africa. The Darlan deal had saved the Allies a long and grueling campaign through Morocco and Algeria to Tunisia, 
and probably prevented tens of thousands of casualties. It also saved them the trouble of occupying the country, by allowing the French to police and govern themselves. But was the Darlan deal the right thing to do? Eisenhower had been the ultimate authority overseeing the deal on the Allied side. But, despite being diplomatic, he was not a diplomat. He saw that there was an enemy before him, and being a military man, needed to destroy, displace, or neutralize that enemy. In the words of Abraham Lincoln, Do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? He also remembered Churchill's stance of, Kiss Darlan's ass if you have to, but get the French fleet. So he did. The backlash was immediate and harsh. An American had treated with an out-and-out fascist. The criticism from the press was withering. Roosevelt was furious, and the British were aghast, despite Churchill's private guidance. Publicly, Churchill stated that, quote, There is above all our own moral position. We are fighting for international decency, and Arlan is the antithesis of that, end quote. Roosevelt, at first, said he would renege on the deal, but this, of course, would mean Eisenhower would be sacked and a Brit would be placed in command, a blow to America's prestige and authority. Despite a tactical victory, Eisenhower's career hung in the balance. So he offered his reasoning as a means of defense. He explained that Pétain was the only authority in North Africa and that Darlan was his successor, thus French troops would listen to him. He also explained that he had saved thousands of American lives and weeks of campaigning, this message General Marshall took to the press, telling them that they had wildly misjudged Eisenhower, and that they were hurting the American cause, and playing right into the hands of the British, who desired a British commander. The press took this to heart, and were more careful about personal attacks on American commanders in the future. Ultimately, the French fleet was scuttled by its captains on November 25th, so Churchill got what he wanted as well. But the Darlan deal was problematic, to be sure. Darlan and Patan were that sniveling class of collaborators who would do whatever it took to save themselves and retain power. Maybe not as evil as the masterminds in Berlin, but they were certainly evil adjacent, the Grima worm tongues to Hitler's Saruman. That they were treated with legitimacy and were so quickly brought into the fold sent a worrying message to Stalin and the various nascent resistant groups gathering in occupied Europe. If the collaborators would face no repercussions, then why resist? At the same time, giving collaborators a chance to change sides, once again, gave them an option other than fighting to the death. Ultimately, I find it difficult to criticize Eisenhower in retrospect. The only criticism I might have is that Eisenhower and Clark never seemed to give Darlan the ultimatum that he either join us or die, and see his men mercilessly torn apart by American lead and steel. Yes, fascism is the most evil, backward, nefarious political movement ever devised by man. But Darlan and Juin were not the roots of fascism, only its opportunistic offshoots. Unconditional surrender would be reserved for the Germans. Additionally, Eisenhower did not have the time or luxury to consider the far-reaching moral and diplomatic effects of decision. He had a battle to win and a campaign to execute in a very uncertain world. The decision would have far-reaching and lasting effects, though. It made Stalin worry that the Americans might negotiate with Hitler, and it deflated the few small resistance groups in continental Europe for a year. As a result, the United States pledged to Stalin that there would be no negotiation with Nazis. With the French no longer an enemy, Eisenhower ordered an advance on Italian-held Tunis on November 11th. At the same time, lead elements of the British First Army were advancing along the coast and had reached the Tunisian border by November 28th. With so many men threatening their southern flank, 
the Germans rushed troops into Tunisia to stave off defeat there. 15,000 men had been rushed in to reinforce the country, bringing the total number of Germans to roughly 30,000. The Germans were now in a fairly decent defensive position. They had good troops and solid logistics capability through improved airfields and a deep water port in Tunis. Dwight Eisenhower was distracted and slow-moving in his first campaign, however. He was too involved in the petty politics of how to govern newly liberated North Africa. Darlan, Gerard, and all the other local power brokers were taking too much of his attention. So when Darlan was assassinated on Christmas Eve 1942, it was almost a salve. After Gerard took over as Governor General of North Africa, Eisenhower seemed to leave the governance to subordinates and focus on campaigning. He still had to let go of the careful planning he had become accustomed to after so many years away from command. Like Montgomery, he liked to tidy up his rear and wasn't apt to make bold, exploitative moves. His experience in North Africa would help him break that habit. Eisenhower was on his way to becoming Supreme Allied Commander. 